Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the EWN Podcast Network. Hello. This is Dr. Judy Cook. Welcoming you to Shrink Wrapped, a place where you can learn skills to shrink away some of your troubles, wrap yourself in more enjoyment, and begin to find more rapture about being in this incredible universe. There's a phantom out there that grabs the hearts and souls and sometimes even the lives of too many of our young people. That phantom is today's topic, opiates and other substance abuse, and why it's there and some things we can do about it. I have been in the field of medicine for nearly 50 years, and although substance abuse has been a problem much longer than that, I have watched it increase markedly over my medical lifetime, especially in opiates, and particularly since OxyContin came back on the scene. Opiates and other substances of abuse have been around for thousands of years, and yet, except for a few reports of drunkenness, there seems to have been little reporting of other abuse issues, whether of tobacco, opiates, cocaine, meth, marijuana, peyote, or other hallucinogens. In fact, They were used mostly for either medicinal or religious and ceremonial purposes. Now, you may be one of those people who feel that whatever a person does with their own life is their business, even if they mess up their lives with drugs or kill themselves. However, at this point in time, substance abuse has become a problem, not just netting hundreds of billions of dollars in profit from both legal and illegal sales, but also costing the American public, like you as a taxpayer and purchaser of health insurance, hundreds of billions of dollars. In fact, a recent figure I saw stated $1.3 trillion every year. These are costs from death, illness, incarceration, and other strains on the legal system, thefts, murders, family disruption, and costs related to damage to infants from parents abusing substances while pregnant. Only about 5% of that total amount is directed toward actual addiction treatment, which sounds like a problem to me. The costs worldwide, of course, are even more staggering. Significant problems with opiates began with the Civil War. Morphine had been extracted from the opium and become a major player in pain management for wounded soldiers and led to morphine addiction for many of them. The development of the hypodermic needle allowed another way to use opiates, not only medicinally, but for abuse. In 1898, 
heroin was developed as a non-addictive morphine substitute. And like many non-addictive pain medications evolving since then, it became an even more addictive and abused substance in its own right. Much of this was felt to be initiated, sustained, and left uncured by members of the medical profession. So beginning in the early 1900s, more and more controls and standards came about for the regulation of these various drugs. Yet the use seems to have increased, as have the varieties of drugs that are manufactured both by pharmaceutical companies and by various illicit manufacturers at home and abroad. Heroin was the opiate of choice when I was in residency, and methadone was not the heroin cure that people had hoped for. As addiction has evolved into a more serious issue, many explanations have been considered. That addiction is the result of narcotics used for pain. That the chemicals of whatever type just immediately grab hold of your brain and leave people no way to escape or that substance abusers are just ne'er-do-wells who have no regard for anyone or anything. There's also been a sense of helplessness and hopelessness about treating substance abuse, confirmed by the fact that it is a rare program that gets more than 10% of its clients better. There are three major issues I want to discuss with you. First, the things that I believe are the real reasons people become substance abusers. Second, what I believe some of the issues are that are causing it to become much worse so quickly. And third, what some of the things are that we can do about it. The real reason most people become substance abusers and addicts. If you talk to a substance abuser or any other kind of addict about why they indulge their particular addiction, the answer is basically usually the same to feel good. Why do they need to use something to feel good? How about because they feel bad? It shouldn't take rocket science to figure that out. As a psychiatrist who has worked with thousands of addicts, the thing that distresses me the most is a general perception that the problem is just addiction. Some authorities do recognize that addicts are self-medicating. From my point of view, the vast majority of addicts are suffering from and self-medicating really serious emotional pain that only becomes apparent if the person treating or helping them first is aware that this is the issue, second is kind and supportive about their emotional issues rather than telling them to suck it up, and third and most important, they are willing to spend the care time, and patience it often takes to get the person to open up and talk about it. To do that, you have to realize the various kinds of things that can cause a pain that is often buried out of the person's awareness or extremely painful and embarrassing or has been the result of an ongoing lower level of emotional assaults that wear away at them like erosion wears away at a riverbed. They may have even been threatened with harm to themselves or someone they love if they talk about it. Often they have also had times they feel suicidal or even made attempts. Although ironically, they don't see substance abuse as an indirect way of committing suicide. 
It is also interesting that in some of the CDC statistical tables, death by accidental drug overdose is listed as an unintentional death. I consider that unintentional just about like someone who is playing Russian roulette and repeatedly pulls the trigger has an unintentional death. As far as I'm concerned, people who abuse most of those abusable substances are out committing suicide just as surely as someone who does it directly, although it happens more slowly, is more torment to the loved ones who care for them, and is usually something that they have not thought about consciously, given how surprised most of them are when I point out that this is what they are doing. Even seemingly more benign things like alcohol and tobacco are very serious offenders. Cirrhosis, caused by alcohol, and chronic lung disease, caused mostly by smoking, are both in the top 10 causes of death. But they happen usually after many years of ongoing abuse, which is thus usually not designated as the underlying cause of death. Opiates, especially when combined with other sedating drugs, such as alcohol or benzodiazepines, have a very high rate of killing people or causing them to wind up in the ER nearly dead, and necessitating first responders to carry naloxone to rapidly start the reversal process. Many of those illicit street drugs are mixed with a variety of things, even including an opiate-based elephant tranquilizer. Clearly, drug dealers, like too many other businesses, don't even care if they kill off some of their clients because there are so many of them. If we added up all the needless deaths from suicide, plus direct deaths from drugs, plus all those indirect deaths from substance abuse like cirrhosis and COPD, their combined total would probably be the number one cause of death in this country. Prevention and medical treatment is where the attack needs to be focused, not just with legal consequences. We have tools to help these people get better, and more importantly, to prevent these problems. But instead, we tend as a society to stigmatize mental health issues and addiction issues and look down on them. Mental health issues generally tend to be looked down upon as if they are something deliberate and something to be ashamed of, which just adds insult to injury for their problems. We also do not have adequate numbers of really good therapists to treat the mental health issues, and even fewer to treat those with addiction issues. And insurance companies go out of their way to try to avoid paying for both of them. There are programs developing to train lay people to intervene in a crisis and try to get them to treatment. However, even if a person gets good acute treatment, goes into a good rehab program, and puts in good effort and makes great progress, their lifelong problems need more than just that 30 days or so, and the follow-up care is often either avoided or inadequate or both. They also often return to the same environment that caused their problems. <clears throat> Further, we cannot just throw pills or abusable substances at these serious emotional wounds and think that is going to heal them any more than pain pills will heal a broken leg. People have to learn where their problems came from so they better understand 
and then change their thought processes and behaviors to get themselves out from under the pain. No pill will do that. Occasional therapists use brief interventions that seem to cure people of their emotional problems almost instantly. But if that really worked, everyone would be doing it. Probably that $100 billion a year psychopharmaceutical business and the drug cartels would also try to prevent it. AA and NA do provide a very good and useful ongoing support network for those who get involved and stay involved. They help with some important elaboration of those sources of pain and are led by people who have come or are coming through that journey themselves. It is not, however, enough all by itself. I want to make it clear here that I am not into the blame game toward either the addicts or those people or situations that cause them emotional or physical harm. The perpetrators have usually been brought up in a non-therapeutic environment as well and without realizing it are passing on those dysfunctional behaviors because it was what was role modeled for or practiced upon them and may reach back several generations. So what are some of these severe pains that drive people to drink or indulge in even more serious addictions? In the case of my own family, it was that emotional erosion issue. Dad and one grandmother were alcoholics and mom had her enabling issues and all of them came from homes that had seriously painful issues. There was constant criticism, not only for things we did wrong, but somehow we were also faulted for things we did right. Often we were just left to our own devices with little of the advice and direction we needed. It is not at all surprising that my brother drank himself to death at 39 or that my sister had lesser problems, or that I turned to being a psychiatrist, although that was certainly not what I had planned to be, nor did my own pain knowingly drive me to seek training in that field. When I started residency, I wasn't aware of how deep my own pain and sense of rejection went. I think it was the support and approval I got through my life from people like friends, employers, and faculty members throughout my life, and those occasional other people showing me love and kindness and better ways of living that allowed me to escape the pattern and become the hero figure in my alcoholic family. There's a wonderful book by Janet Wojtitz called Adult Children of Alcoholics, which describes so well the different roles that are typical for the children of alcoholic families, and my family fit the mold perfectly. These issues are pretty much the same for most substance abusers. Thankfully, I found a wonderful psychiatrist while in residency, which probably saved my life, although my issue was depression rather than drugs. I have had many patients where there is very blatant abuse, which might have been emotional or physical or sexual or all of the above and more. It might have come from family or from other respected people like teachers or ministers or family friends, and occasionally it came from total strangers. All too often in the case of abuse victims, they learn to perpetuate the pattern of how to keep people interacting with them that same way because they had few or no role models for how to do things differently. In addition, people who have been abused, especially sexually, 
are often threatened with dire consequences to themselves or a loved one if they tell anyone. Often, once that pattern of abuse is set up, it becomes the normal way life is and is continued in other relationships with spouses, friends, and even children, and the whole pattern continues until one of them breaks loose and disrupts it. That person often gets excluded from the family as a bad person who is mistreating all those loving family members. In the mental health field, the identified patient is often the healthiest member of the family, and they often get rejected yet again because they expose the family secret or they act so differently from the rest of the family. Some people, especially teenagers who feel unloved or isolated or worse, feel the need to do drugs to fit in and belong to some kind of group. Those people who are already substance abusers tend to be very accepting of pretty much anyone. Again, there is often emotional distress driving all of this. We're going to take a short break now, and when I return, we will talk about some of the issues that have driven the explosive growth of addictions in the past 40 years or so, and some of the things we can do as individuals and or society to help reverse this trend. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at EWNpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome back to Shrinkwrapped. Let's now start looking at causes and preventive solutions for these increasing addiction problems. So what are some of the issues causing the explosive growth of addictions? There are several factors that work together to cause this horrendous increase in substance abuse and related problems, including deaths. First is probably the increased ease of getting prescription opiates that could be swallowed snorted or injected when oxycontin and oxycodone were released. They were initially not controlled like other narcotics. They were much more readily available as a Schedule IV prescription drug, which was only minimally regulated, often given out in huge numbers, and easily obtained off the street, supplied by rings of people that often included doctors and pharmacies, and especially those people getting prescriptions for large numbers of pills by going to multiple doctors and multiple pharmacies to obtain them. It was also made all the more appropriate for doctors to give more pain pills because suddenly pain became the fifth vital sign and we couldn't let people suffer with that chronic pain even, it was, even if it was something other than cancer causing the pain. Unfortunately, opiates given for chronic pain, as opposed to acute pain, often cause rebound pain. So patients who are just trying to do what they are told wind up taking more and more medication, and yet the medication causes the pain to steadily increase. 
I have had many of those patients were taking them off the opiates and putting them on over-the-counter pain meds, finally left them pain-free for the first time, often in years. Nowhere in all of this, of course, were most doctors looking at the possibility of emotional stressors driving that chronic pain either. A few years ago, the FDA finally did what should have been done from the beginning and made OxyContin and related drugs like fentanyl Schedule II drugs, so the patient had to have a prescription written on a special form in limited doses and required monthly visits to get new prescriptions. They also took more action against the dispensing mills. Unfortunately, the street dealers just quickly changed to heroin, as well as getting more drugs of abuse from other countries and creating more dangerous combinations, and the problems only increased. Addicts had already gotten hooked on that feel-better solution and were blind to the consequences even as they were watching their friends die because of the abuse. The really sad thing is that both death by intentional causes and suicide became the leading causes of death in our youth from 8 to 24 years of age. Our young people and they are continuing to increase in numbers. To me, that is not okay, and that is where we need to put a lot of effort and where the ability to practice prevention is the greatest. Especially for kids, but for adults as well, there are several issues that contribute to the problem. Some people are raised in homes where drugs and alcohol abound and may even be shared with kids at an early age. So it seems the normal thing that everybody does. There are also a lot of parents who tend to believe that their kids wouldn't do this or they're unaware of the signs that something is changing or dreadfully wrong or they want to ignore it or they have no idea what to do about it. Another issue is the increasing publicity about drugs of all kinds, including all the advertising about drugs, foods, and other activities to make people feel better, or drugs that are used to enhance performance in athletics and bodybuilding. There's also a tendency to almost glamorize these kinds of drug-related behaviors and deaths, particularly when they happen to celebrities. There's an increased ability to access, transport, deliver, and modify these drugs. Many of them can even be ordered over the internet, and there are also instructions on the web for making your own drugs. There have also been many synthetic drugs that are manufactured and sold on the shelves of places like convenience stores. They're not designated as drugs, and they're marketed under benign names like K2, spice, and bath salts, among others. The latter is a combination of drugs, including hallucinogens like PCP, LSD, ecstasy, and others that cause hallucinations and aggression that are difficult even to control in the ER with heavy doses of major tranquilizers. Needless to say, they also have a high mortality rate and often have long-lasting bad effects. 
One of the things that is really important to realize about our young people is that they must have attention. It is a part of what they need to even survive, especially as infants, and still part of what they need to grow and develop through childhood and adolescence. It is essential to staying alive and thriving physically and mentally. If children are not getting positive attention, they will seek negative attention. What they need is a balance. To be told when their behavior is unacceptable. Not that they are unacceptable because of their bad behavior. And they need to be given positive feedback and praise when they are doing well. And they need to get love and attention just because they exist. When they don't get adequate positive attention, acting out behaviors and substance abuse are a couple of ways they strive to get it. Society has undergone massive changes over the last few hundred years, and that has really accelerated over my lifetime also. People have moved more and more away from living in more natural settings, around a familiar community of friends and extended family, to moving more into cities, often moving frequently because of their jobs. More and more often they live in neighborhoods that are crowded with dwellings that have little access to nature and are too busy to make friends with all but a few neighbors. The nature and demands of work have changed, and so has the nature of the family. In many families now, both parents work as a financial necessity, and because women have become more liberated and are allowed to do more things than just be a housewife and a mother. For example, at the time I started medical school in 1969, there were only token females in medical schools, but now the classes are half women. Although the glass ceiling has been broken in many areas, women still tend to have to work twice as hard and do twice as well to be considered half as good, and they still don't get equal pay and promotions and consideration, so they are under greater pressure in their lives. This takes a toll not only on them, but on marriage and family. In addition, for children, good child care is not only hard to find, but getting increasingly more expensive. So kids may wind up in more than one child care situation even over a short period of time, like leaving them with different friends and relatives or sitters. And the rules in each of these environments differs. Especially for young kids, this can be very confusing. If, in addition, they come from a broken home, they not only have differing parents' and grandparents' sets of rules, they often learn to play one household against another to get away with things, or they wind up as cannon fodder between feuding parents and families, which adds to their stress, strain, confusion, sense of not belonging, and sense of being loved and valued. So what are some of the things we can do about all of this? One of the first things we need to do to help solve the problem is quit seeing substance abuse and mental health issues as a character flaw or deliberate or hopeless. We need to remove the stigma and be much more open about emotions. They are, after all, the heart of what makes us human, and we need to make treatment more available. We also need to recognize 
that pills are only a temporary help. If all those pills would fix the problems, everyone would be well by now. Another major issue is that if people are abusing drugs because they feel bad and the drugs help relieve that pain and make them feel good, we need to be looking at other ways to help them feel good that are healthier and give them better lives. Because this is such an important area, my show next week will actually be about some of those things we can do to help people increase their happiness factor without drugs. But some of them include things like finding positive addictions, spending time in nature, and learning new ways to look at things so they don't hurt anymore. My biggest concern, if you haven't noticed by now, is working to solve the problem by doing preventive things with our really young people, children and teens. Because the earlier some important things are done with them, the less they are at risk to succumb. We must aim for cutting off the problem before it really gets started, which is much more effective than waiting till later. For those who don't realize it, there are even people who de deal drugs in and around schools. They can be peers, older students, or teachers, in addition to those strangers they need to be wary of and avoid. Preventive education is really important for your kids, and you need to give them more and more information as they get older. When they are older, you need to stress how it can keep them from achieving many of their goals in life if they wind up with substance abuse problems and legal issues. You stress all this again if any of their friends or schoolmates are having problems in these areas. Another really important preventive strategy is giving them plenty of positive attention when they deserve it and appropriate and consistent consequences when they need them. Do not keep threatening a consequence and then not follow through. Because although your words may say no, your behavior is telling them it's okay to continue. It is really important to provide a stable environment, especially in childhood and early teens. If both parents are working, make sure you still spend positive time with your child every day, even if it's only 10 minutes a couple times a day. This is time spent talking with them and holding them not just sitting in front of a TV or a computer with them. It amazes me the number of people who will say they don't have time to do this. And yet, they have time to spend much longer times fighting with their kids or dealing with the problems they have created. If you need to put your younger kids into the care of someone while you are working, be sure you check that person or situation out carefully and try to limit the number of environments your kids experience. I have seen parents putting kids into different care situations, sometimes several times a week, and sometimes those situations are really inconsistent or otherwise unhealthy, which is not what you want them exposed to. They need some consistency for a healthy development, even if it is a consistent situation that they rebel against and decide to live differently. Lest you think that is always bad, think again. Many doctors, nurses, and other caregivers have grown up in these environments that are 
less than ideal, and they worked to compensate for those negative situations by doing something very positive with their lives. You also need to recognize that every child is different. And a parenting style that works really well for one may fail dreadfully with another. This does not mean you are as a failure as a parent. It may well mean you will need to get help and guidance both to help your child with their issues and for you to learn how to cope with them effectively. Having same parents does not mean the kids are the same, nor does growing up in the same home. Each of them is unique, individual, and different. And each time another child is added, the family structure also changes. And that works well for some kids and requires help for others. As an example, some kids really welcome a new sibling, while others feel that newcomer is taking all the attention away from them and begin acting out to get more attention for themselves. The next issue that is really important is to watch your kids for changes, whether that is a change in behavior, mood, friends, performance at school, attitude, dropping out of activities, anything that is a change from what has been their normal baseline. While some of this may be normal teen rebellion, err on the side of looking into it and addressing it rather than ignoring it and hoping it will go away. Ironically, kids are often hoping you care enough to notice and intervene. I must add that substance abuse, although high on the list, is not the only possible cause of these changes. It can be rejection by a love interest or other friends. It could be sexual abuse, bullying, whether cyberbullying or in-person bullying, an emotional reaction to a death of a classmate, parents divorcing, loss of a loved one or family member by moving or death or change in environment, such the family moving and necessitating uprooting your child from friends, neighborhood, and all the other things that go with it. The important thing is to sit with them lovingly and talk to them about the changes you notice and ask what is wrong. Do not take nothing for an answer. Work at being open in the family to talk about emotional issues and limit the time spent with TV, computers, phones, and other non-human activities, as well as any activities that minimize time in outdoor activities. Sit together at meals and talk to each other and socialize. That bonding is important. If the problems persist, get professional help. And even if there is a psychiatric diagnosis, do not assume that pills are the only treatment that is needed. Therapy for patient and family is needed. Why is it needed for the family? Because you need to develop some new skills to help them deal with their problem. If they go back into the same environment, the same behaviors will return. It does not mean you are a bad or a failure. It simply means there are new things you must learn to help them. 
If substance abuse is an issue in the family, lock up all your meds, not just the abusable ones, and also lock up any alcohol. Kids these days have activities called raves, where they grab any and everything from the medicine cabinet, and they all get together, throw them in a huge container, and then take hands full of whatever is there, hoping to get a buzz. Needless to say, that is a very risky situation. Locking up weapons is also a good protective strategy. Be sure to educate yourself and your loved ones about the problems and dangers of addictions. Have the courage to intervene early. Encourage our society to push for more prevention and treatment so we can minimize our mental health issues. Know that it is rare to have a mental or physical or neurological problem these days that cannot be helped and or cured if the right treatments are put in place. Encourage the institution of more dual diagnosis treatment programs for people with substance abuse issues. Learn some skills for yourself and that you can teach others about how to reframe, refocus, and correct some of those underlying problems. It will help all of you lead happier lives. We will talk about this next topic more next week, but developing an attitude of gratitude is one of the most important skills you can learn and teach to others or encourage them to learn. The Magic, written by Rhonda Byrne, is a book that helps teach that step by step. Why is this important? Because the world is full of all kinds of things, good, bad, and indifferent. There are things we love, things we hate, things that are frightening, things that are enjoyable. And the more we focus on the positive things in the world that we should be grateful for, the better we feel. Why not go for what makes you feel good instead of focus on negative things and feel bad. Start learning to take those things in your life that seem horrible and start looking for ways to turn that pile of manure into fertilizer for developing more positive things in your life. Do not watch the news just before bedtime. It makes the world look like everything is horrible and leaves those thoughts bouncing around in your head while you are sleeping, and none of us need that. One thing I find tremendously encouraging about the whole drug abuse situation is one of the things that's being done to curtail drug production. Colombia has long been a major source of cocaine and opium. They have come up with a very creative strategy that is helping fight that problem. People grow the plants that produce drugs to produce money. Colombia is now growing different plants that make money in a different way. They are growing plants for cut flowers and have become a major provider of cut flowers in the world. And I'm proud to say that even before that, they had been started growing orchids as an economically beneficial way of making money, growing things that are a source of some of that good-feeling stuff that is so much better than drugs. They've also become a major provider for people to get plastic surgery, but
but that's a whole different issue. It still gives them a constructive revenue stream rather than a destructive one and significantly decreases legal problems and leaves people feeling safer about visiting there, which also helps with tourism dollars. We need to develop more creative situations and solutions like this around the world. Remember that people with addiction problems, any kind of addiction problems, have that addiction because it makes them feel better by at least helping temporarily cover up their pain despite the fact that in the long run it could be lethal. Thus, helping them look for and find positive addictions can be a major step in helping them move forward into a happier, healthier life free of substance abuse issues. Next time, we will talk about what some of those positive addictions can be, including learning to learn to turn to nature for nurture. Thank you for listening to Shrink Wrapped, where our goal is to help you shrink away your problems and increase the rapture in your life. If you want to find additional information, please go to my website, godrjudy.com. That's Go Dr. Judy. And I look forward to sharing with you again next week. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 